0: Welcome to Two Way Street, I'm Olivia Reingold in for Bill Nygut. Astronaut Scott Kelly has spent more consecutive days in space than any other American. We're revisiting our conversation with him and other favourites as part of Two Way Street's birthday celebration. To mark our four years on the air, we're listening back to the shows that have stuck with us the most. And it was an easy decision to include this one, because Scott Kelly is one of only two people who can say they've spent a year in space. His record-breaking 340 days in space was the culmination of decades of preparation. He and his twin brother Mark began their careers as Navy test pilots. Then, in 1996, they got the news that would forever change their lives. They'd been accepted into NASA's astronaut program. Both of them have since piloted missions to space, but it was their separation of Mark on Earth and Scott in space that really made headlines. While Scott was orbiting Earth in the ISS, Mark was below participating in NASA's first ever twin study for astronauts. The idea was to compare space's effect on Scott against his own personal control group, his twin Mark. That study measured mental and physical health Which is fitting because as Scott reveals in this interview, all that time in space could be trying. He joined Bill last November to discuss his 340 days aboard the International Space Station, which was the subject of his 2017 memoir, Endurance, a year in space, a lifetime of discovery. They began at the very beginning of Scott's year in space, with what he packed in his bag that helped set the tone of his entire journey. Scott
1: Kelly, welcome to uh, Two-Way Street. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. You took with you on your uh, year in space the book that tells the adventures of Ernest Shackleton, a book called... Endurance? What was it about Ernest Shackleton's adventures that uh, made you want that book with you? And you decided to name your book uh, for that same t- with that same title.
2: Well, you know, his m- ship was named Endurance, an Antarctic explorer. And the book I read, there's a few books about uh, uh, Shackleton and and the crew of Endurance. And this one was by Alfred Lansing, the one I read. I um, actually had it with me on my first long flight. The idea being that, and the second one, but the idea being that I felt like if I ever uh, felt really, really sorry for myself or if the situation got so bad that I thought, oh, man, this is really hard, I can't stand living here anymore, I would just open some pages of that book and think, man, I got it really good (laughs) because those guys got uh, marooned on the ice for almost a couple of years it took them to, on their own, uh, get from um, an ice flow in Antarctica after their ship sunk to a place called Elephant Island, later uh, St. George's Island, where there was actually people that could help them. But when they got there, they were on the wrong side of the island. They had to cross this mountain pass in the wintertime that had never been done before. I mean, it's just a really uh, remarkable tale of uh, survival, but also leadership on, on um you know, with, with Shackleton. And if you, you know, there's, um, there's a, a, a quote in the book that kind of gives me, you know, goosebumps, um, every time I even think about it. And that is, uh, you know, there's three Arctic, Explo- Antarctic explorers, Scott Edmondson and, uh, Shackleton, and I'll probably butcher this, but, uh, it's, it's something to the effect that with, uh, you know, for scientific discovery, give me Scott, for speed and efficiency of travel, Amundsen, and then, you know, whenever the situation is so bleak and, and dire, like an emergency situation where you have no other hope, you know, just get on your knees and pray for Shackleton. You know, so that's, I chose that title in some ways to honor, honor him as like a personal hero of mine, but also... You know, I think the story of my life in, in a lot of respects is, is a story of, you know, kind of sticking with it and endurance, always opportunities to fail along the way. You know, I flew in space twice, and then I had prostate cancer and had surgery and flew twice after that for 500 days in space. So you were diagnosed before the 159-day yeah. mission, which you really wanted to go on— Well, that was my career. I was an astronaut and I wanted to fly in space again. And, you know, a long-duration flight, which has actually more significant uh, or more stringent medical requirements. Um, But I think it's, you know, it kind of shows people that have cancer that you can, you know, if with right treatment, maybe, you know, some luck or whatever, but you can continue your life and still... You know, have a future. And I think that's an important message.
1: Yeah. And you had a very tough decision to make
2: um, how to treat it. Yeah. Um,
1: and finally opted for, for, for surgery. Yeah. yeah. And got back into space, not once, but twice after that.
2: Yeah. I flew in space for 20 days. Then I had cancer and then I flew in space for 500 days. <laughs> Your brother, Mark, you called him up when you were diagnosed. And since you're identical twins,
1: you said, Mark, you better get checked.
2: Yeah, and he had cancer too, right?
1: But he had it on the opposite yeah. side of his prostate yeah. from
2: you, just like yeah, you this have a little what? red dot on our foreheads. Wow. Mirror image twins, I guess.
1: Okay, so let's talk about that year long mission. You started in Kazakhstan at the Russian Space Center at Baikonur, right? Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book as you were marching out to the launch vehicle, you heard this. Земля в иллюминаторе, земля в иллюминаторе, Земля в иллюминаторе видна, Как сын грусти матери, как сын грусти матери, грустим мы земле, она одна. А звезды, тем не менее, а звезды, тем не менее, Чуть ближе но все так же холодны. И как часы затмения, и как часы затмения, ждем света и земны. It's a Russian song? Yes. And they play it traditionally for uh, their cosmonauts and for you as an astronaut going out to the launch pad, yes?
2: Yeah, every time you exit the cosmonaut hotel on the way to uh, get suited up and then later to go to the launch pad, that's the uh, song that plays, which is about uh, an astronaut looking back at Earth and missing his home.
1: You quote some of the lyrics, and we don't dream of the cosmodrome's roar nor of the this icy, dark blue. Instead, we dream of the grass, the grass near our homes, the green, green grass. And in fact, when you come back, that's one of the things that you realize you've missed so much is um, nature, the grass, flowers, right?
2: Yeah, a lot of things like that, that, uh, you know, we don't have in space that we have on earth. You know, interestingly enough, one of the cosmonauts, the guy I flew in space with, Gennady Padalka, he says, When we're in space, we miss Earth, and when we're on Earth, we miss space.
1: On that day, you uh, began the mission, and (laughs) as you walked out to the launch pad, you became part of a ritual that was begun by Yuri Gagarin, the great Russian cosmonaut who was the first man in space.
2: What is that ritual? So Yuri Gagarin... On the uh, on his first launch into space, which was the launch of the first person into space, human. Uh, on the way to the launch pad, he had to relieve himself, so they stopped the bus at a certain spot, and he got out. He undid his spacesuit, he peed on the tire, got back in the bus, and launched into space, and came back safely. So ever since then, the uh, cosmonauts and astronauts, they fly with them on the Soyuz, do the same thing. Yeah, I, w- I would
1: think that the uh, suit that you're wearing would not make that an easy uh, ritual to accomplish.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a little uh, challenging. You have to kind of undo the seal that you just pressure checked yeah. in the suit, which is kind of interesting. So you go out to the launch pad, and here's what happens next. Crew reporting they're ready to go. The vehicle on internal power. Oh
1: Auto sequence initiated
2: less than 15 seconds, the engine's igniting. Ramping up.
0: And
2: and liftoff. Soyuz craft now passing a speed of over 4,700 miles an hour. Getting a look now at NASA astronaut Scott Kelly there in the right seat, giving a big thumbs up.
1: You uh, have uh, launched like that on any number of occasions. You describe in the book what it's like to sit on top of some... 280 tons of explosive propellant that launches you into space. Help us understand what that feels like.
2: Yeah, it it gets your attention. You know, you're sitting on top of a bomb with uh, liquid oxygen. In the case of the Russian Soyuz, Soyuz, liquid uh, kerosene is the fuel. And, um, yeah, there's very few things in life that are uh, as serious as that. So I want to go back in time with you for a minute. On your three – starting
1: with your your uh, uh, days on the space station itself, I think it was on day 327 that you wrote a letter to the writer Tom Wolf. Um What did you tell Tom Wolf in that letter?
2: Well, I told him how, uh, you know, important his uh, book, The Right Stuff, was for me as a kid because when I was younger – going through school. I was a kid that, you know, didn't do well. I sat in the back of the room. I didn't pay much attention to what was going on in the classroom. I really couldn't. It seemed like it was impossible. I went to college eventually uh, because it was kind of the thing we were supposed to do. And I still struggled there. And one day I was in the, walking across campus and I happened to go in the, to the bookstore to buy like gum or something, not a book, That was not a big book buyer. God
1: forbid you should buy a book.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't my plan. Um, (laughs) But I saw this book on the shelf, and it had this really uh, cool cover, red, white, and blue, uh, a cool title, made me pick it up. I started looking at at it and uh, took my gum money, purchased the book, went back to my room and read it over the next few days, probably skipped class to do it, and uh, felt like I had you know, traits, and I could relate to the guys that were real people, you know, the astronauts that became the uh, original Mercury Gemini and, a, and Apollo astronauts, the, the fighter pilots and test pilots that later became astronauts. And the book was the right stuff if we didn't mention it already by Tom Wolfe. And um, so I told Tom how important that book was to me because it, be, it was my inspiration to do something that uh, I previously thought was impossible Um, which was being a military fighter pilot and test pilot and becoming an astronaut someday. And you, I mean, it wasn't easy. Um, you might think, well, that's a giant leap. 18 year old kid decides he's going to do that. But once I figured out how to pay attention and do my homework, really the rest of it was just some very kind of small manageable steps, but a lot of like perseverance and, you know, endurance along the way, because there's always opportunities to get sidetracked and opportunities to fail. So I wrote Tom a, an email, and uh, some, a friend got it to him, and I just you know, thanked him for helping me uh, get to that point in my life. You, you wrote the letter from the International
1: Space Station and took a photograph of the cover of the book, I think. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, so I imagine it, when, you, when I think about the right stuff, uh, of course it, it talks, he, he talks a lot about the Mercury astronauts, but Chuck Yeager is the real star of that book in many ways. And I would think Chuck Yeager, one of the great, great test pilots, uh, must have been an extraordinary inspiration for how you turned your life around.
2: So Chuck Yeager, yeah, very accomplished uh, test pilot. Um, But for me, you know, I wanted to go into the Navy, and he was an Air Force guy. (laughs) I (laughs) wanted to fly (laughs) in space, and he wasn't an astronaut. So I was really more... uh, no no disrespect to him. Of, of course, he, he's had an amazing career in life. But, you know, what motivated me was more of the, uh, you know, a little bit different uh, path. So um,
1: we happened to uh, talk to Tom Wolfe for another show that we're doing. And because I, uh, we knew then that you were coming in, uh, listen to a little bit about what happened with our conversation with Tom. The astronaut Scott Kelly is going to be in our studio in about a week or so. What did it mean to you? To get a letter from him while he was in space in which he told you that your book, The Right Stuff, truly changed his life. My immediate reaction was, he must be kidding. You know, I'm I'm not changing anybody's (laughs) life. But it was a fabulous letter to get, and I think he was not pulling my leg. But, he, you know, at the time, he was a young man, completely at odds with himself, had no idea what to do. And if you read the book, you'll be struck, as I was, I'm sure, by the fact that he wanted, he all his life, he had enjoyed doing dangerous things, including physical things. And he's a very different human being than the people that I'm used to being around.
2: Tom Wolfe talking about our guest, uh, Scott Kelly. That was awesome, by the way. Thanks for doing that sure. and me hear that. that was, uh, <laughs> that's a real uh, honor. So it was that book
1: that inspired you and put you on a path to sort of take life more seriously. But you also write about the fact that once you became an astronaut, once you started mingling with your uh, fellow astronauts, you all shared a common memory of childhood. You talk about coming downstairs in your pajamas to... Uh, watch the first
2: moon landing you remember, remember that well you know most astronauts share that memory uh, except for my brother he doesn't remember i don't know why maybe he was asleep <laughs> but uh yeah we uh it's a common thing to see yeah to to have a childhood memory of the astronauts uh landing on the moon you know for my era of astronauts i think you know now you, the folks that there are being selected are, uh, were not even born in some cases, actually in a lot of cases. yeah, They weren't born, so they don't have those memories. But yeah, that, the moon landings inspired a lot of us. Uh, now, unfortunately, it didn't inspire me enough to where I was able to do my homework, uh, and took some inspiration <laughs> later on. Um, but yeah, there were astronauts that decided right then and there they were going to do whatever it took and got straight A's and, you know, were the top performers uh, the rest of their lives. But I, that was not me. Uh, yet once you did commit, you
1: rose through the ranks. Uh, I don't know if quickly is the right word, but you certainly found yourself being singled out more and more uh, for important uh, uh, missions and work.
2: Well, yeah, you know, I got picked, uh, selected on my first try or first application. I almost didn't even apply because I didn't think I was qualified. But then you know, kind of sent in an application just expecting to be rejected, but, you know, what's the harm? You know, I think a lot of people in life worry about failing, but I think failing is important. let lets you definitely figure out where you stand, yeah. and uh, you're not going to achieve uh, great things if you're scared of always failing, and uh, so I sent in an application at, you know, I was 31 years old and got selected when I was 32. Uh, You know, went to NASA as a 32-year-old Navy lieutenant, flew in space three years later. It's pretty remarkable.
1: You know, it's interesting, though. You say in the book that uh, you always wanted to fly the most difficult aircraft, and you have a long section in which you talk about what it was like to learn to land jets on Mm. aircraft carriers, especially at night. And you say later in the book, uh, that was harder than I think you say than landing the shuttle. (laughs) Uh, That's a remarkable section of the book. How scary was that?
2: Um, I'd say about half the time, landing the F-14 on the aircraft carrier at night, I'd say about half the time it was terrifying. The other half of the time, just scary. What's the challenge? Well, for all airplanes that land on the ship at night, often there's no horizon. You're trying to land in this very small landing area. You use uh, lights on the side and in the back of the ship and in the center line of, of the, the flight deck to line yourself up. Sometimes if there's no horizon or how the weather conditions are, you can feel like you're almost upside down when your wings level. And that is a huge distraction. What made it worse in the F-14 Tomcat is had some very poor flying qualities. It uh, was not um, well suited to land on the ship. One, as an example, if you uh, would try to make an a adjustment to line up, which means I want to, let's say, turn left to line up on the, on the runway, on the flight deck, on the landing area in the F-14 when you did that, the uh, nose of the uh, airplane would yaw uh, significantly and then would kind of like rock back and forth, which made figuring out, um, you know, whether you were centered up uh, like you were supposed to. And that took most of your attention to where the other things you're supposed to be controlling also suffered. Um, And sometimes it was so uh, you know, so difficult and, and scary that, uh, once you did land and you were trying to taxi out of the, uh, arresting gear wires, your legs would shake because of the adrenaline yeah. that was flowing through your body. Yeah.
1: Uh, you also, what speed were you landing at about?
2: Uh, the F-14, I think, if I recall, it was probably about 130 knots. Yeah. And uh, you don't have a
1: whole lot of room for error because if you missed the arresting wire, uh, getting back up off the deck
2: is uh, pretty tricky, isn't it? Well, you plan for that. Every time you touch down, um, you anticipate that you're not going to catch the wire, so you're prepared to get back into the air. You add full power until you stop. Uh, Once you've stopped, then you pull the engines back.
0: We're going to take a break right now. When we return, we'll revisit more of Bill Nygut's conversation with retired astronaut Scott Kelly. Joining us, I'm Olivia Rheingold, in for Bill Nygut. We're listening back to a conversation with astronaut Scott Kelly, who spent more consecutive days in space than any other American. On his last and final mission, he spent 340 days as a commander of the International Space Station. That is the subject of his 2017 memoir, Endurance, A Year in Space, a Lifetime of Discovery which had just been released when Kelly visited our studios last November. Scott and his fiance Amico arrived in the middle of a long and tiring tour to promote the book. They'd left Chicago early that morning and were understandably hungry on their way to the two-way street studio. As Bill picked up their conversation, Scott became preoccupied with a souvenir from their stop at an iconic Atlanta eatery.
1: I let it be noted that uh Scott and Amico, who is with him in the studio, uh, went to the varsity before they came here. And Scott Kelly just tried to put on
2: a varsity... <laughs>
1: Uh, cap, which everybody listening to this show will be familiar with.
2: (laughs) So I'm I'm, I'm clearly still the kid that's like looking out the window at the squirrels if I'm playing around with the varsity hat during the interview. Let me get rid of it. It it
1: clearly says something (laughs) about my ability to keep you engaged. (laughs) I'll try to do better. That's fine. Don't worry about it all. I thought it was fun. But the, the complaint of those Mercury astronauts was when they were First, learning about uh, the uh, flights they were going to take, is they didn't have any control over. They were they were passengers. They they said we're we're like the chimps, and they insisted that they have a little bit to do so they actually could feel
2: like pilots, right? Yeah, that was <laughs> uh, I think the case back then. You know, I I can't recall in the book if it's talked about much, but it's definitely emphasized in the in the movie that initially our government wasn't even sure what kind of people to put into space, whether they would be more daredevils, uh, you know, in the, in the movie, the right stuff, they talk about maybe circus performers or the guy <laughs> that gets shot out of the cannon. Cause he's used to getting shot out of something. And eventually they decided, Hey, we're going to, seems like test pilots are the, the best people to do that because they have experience in uh, flight test in at least the air, not necessarily space, but you know, there I guess there was a little bit of a bureaucratic downside to that, and that they wanted to be able to control the vehicle, which is the right thing to do. I mean, if you're especially in something that is so uh, so new, so unfamiliar, so risky, uh, to have the ability to actually manually manually control the spacecraft is critically important.
1: And in every one of the vehicles that you flew for NASA, you did have, certainly with the shuttle, as commander, you had great control, particularly in in the landing stage, uh, but I assume throughout the flight as well.
2: Yeah, you can uh, fly the space shuttle all the way from uh, 90 seconds after liftoff. Prior to that, it doesn't have the uh, control authority or, you know, I don't remember exactly uh, the exact reason, but there's, uh, you're not able to physically control it uh, prior to 90 seconds. But after 90 seconds, you could fly the thing all the way through the rest of the ascent into space, manually, all the way down to the ground. Yeah. But what we really do, um, you know, those other ways, other times to control it is when you have some kind of a failure. What we normally would do is we, we would fly the rendezvous and the docking to, like, the space station manually. And then the commander of the shuttle would take over at Mach 1 all the way to landing and wheel stop. Yeah. I think uh, on, especially on two
1: longer. You, there are 340 days, but you had previously done 157, something like that. 159. Days? 159. But who's so, counting? Yeah. So you spent. Well, we will. You spent 520 days in space, and traveled
2: over 200 million miles, uh, and yet you don't hold the record. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, a couple of my colleagues passed me up uh, for total days in space. Not, uh, I still have the longest uh, single flight of an American. Uh, but, you know, records are made to be broken, and that's, uh, you know, hopefully someday people will be spending much more time in space than we have. So uh, the book centers largely on
1: the 340-day uh, mission. Um, once you'd done 159 days, why did you, you, you tell us that— your attitude was, I will not turn down any mission that's presented to me. And when they told you they wanted you to do 340 days in space, it had to have been a daunting idea for you, even though you were willing to accept it.
2: Well, initially I said no thanks, which is I've, – I've, I've done that a few times. Um, uh, my initial reaction is to – try to maybe think of someone else that might be better for the job if I didn't really feel like doing it. But, um, you know, if, you know, when, uh, you know, your management and leadership come back and say, hey, we really want you to do this. And, uh, you know, I thought more about it. But the way this, in this particular case, in this flight, the way it really worked was that uh, I had pr- just recently gotten back from space when they started talking about a year-long flight. So, you know, the Six months is a long time in space, and uh, I wasn't too interested because, you know, it's hard. But then as I got further away from it, I thought, you know, I want to fly in space again. I want it to be different, and if I flew another six-month flight, it might not be that different, and uh, a year would make it twice as challenging um, or more, and I was right. So eventually I came around to the idea, and then when we... You know, there were certain requirements to figure out who the right person was for this, whether it was, uh, you know, experience or medical requirements. When they put this, you know, these different filters on the whole astronaut office, in the end, there was only a couple of people that were uh, eligible.
1: And at first, they said no to you. They they chose someone else, and you went home to see Amico sitting here with us and— You said, I didn't get chosen, and she helped you
2: figure out how to go back to them. They decided that I was going to be the person. I was assigned to the flight, and then, like, 24 hours later, they said, you know, you're actually not medically qualified. Someone had spoken up about some issue with my eyes. And then, you know, I got home, and I told her, and she said, you know, I've never seen you really take no for an answer, you know. You know, take this lying down. So I, uh, you know, came up with a, a plan and and did a, did some research and made my case the next day. And they quickly, you know, re uh, rethought the decision and and decided I would actually be maybe the better choice to go do this. Uh, it you know, you uh, um, got up there, and I think as you entered the space station, your thought was, "This is crazy. Why am I doing this?" <laughs> Yeah. You know, I had been there previously, uh, you know, four years previously, and then you get on board and you're like, ooh, it's, it's looking the same, sounding the same, smelling the same. And I'm day one of a year in space. Um, the International Space
1: Station is pretty remarkable uh I don't know what to call it. Uh, it. You call it a place. You say that uh, that you got to the point where you consider it to be essentially a, a geographical place.
2: Well, it's a you know it's a home. It's a it's a, a workplace. It's a garage. It's an attic. It's a scientific laboratory. It's a lot of things. It's something. It's like a, a ship. I mean, we don't refer to it as a as a she like you do in the navy. Often uh, naval vessels are. Uh, referred to in the in the feminine, um, but you know, I think maybe it should be, you know, because it's very much like a like a ship, even though it's a space station. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a place that you uh, you know come to appreciate and uh, you know really miss uh, now that I'm not there anymore. One of the
1: things that's interesting is that uh, you're commander of uh, this remarkable uh, uh, place in space. And it, 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 I suppose it sounds glamorous, and there are a lot of people who would think that your life in space is glamorous, uh, <laughs> but uh, the book goes into great detail describing just how not glamorous a lot of it is. Uh, for instance, being awakened in the middle of
2: the night because a, the toilet is broken. Yeah. You know, sometimes you uh, wake up, and I wouldn't say it's always—it would break in the middle of the night, but you would sometimes go in there and— uh, you know, the, the uh, lack of a better word, like the bucket that the urine goes into yeah. would get filled up yeah. and then you'd have to replace it uh, before uh, you were able to use it and go back to sleep.
1: Well, but that was the point. You in the middle of the night, you had to deal with this because you say that when if uh, everybody else woke up in the morning, they wouldn't have anywhere to pee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and You can't walk out your back door and use the tree. You also had problems off and on, and it affected you particularly, with um, the uh, uh, scrubbers, the CO2 scrubbers. What happened to you when there was too much
2: CO2 in the uh You know, I, I think everyone has certain symptoms. Because I was going to be there for so long, I wanted to, you know, do my best to make the situation better for me and, and for the people that followed me. So I kind of raised it as a, as a personal uh, cause and, and issue my symptoms when the CO2 got high and I could actually tell what it was, uh, just based on how I felt, uh, what the, uh, uh, concentration was in the atmosphere down to like 0.1 or 2 millimeters. So the symptoms I would have was congestion, burning eyes, uh, me just not feeling, you know, a hundred percent, a little bit, uh, cognitive, uh, deficit, you know, harder to concentrate. And, uh, yeah it kind of became sort of like the uh the uh, protagonist i guess in the, of the story it a little
1: really bit. does become that <laughs> your constant battle to keep the c o two levels uh, at an acceptable uh level life on the on the space station had some sort of awfully good moments I think it's safe to say um you tell us that New Year's Eve was an especially important day because it was a holiday that you celebrated, the Russians celebrated the same day you celebrated the same day. Uh, let's listen to a message on uh, New Year's
2: Eve. Welcome aboard the International Space Station. I'm Scott Kelly, along with my Expedition 46 crew members, Tim Copra and Tim Peake, and we have a New Year's message for you. Happy New Year to all the people of planet Earth. Thank you.
1: Nice. Very <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> Captain Kelly, was that all I said? That's all you said. Really? Oh man! <laughs> but nevertheless, when you're flying above Earth like that, does it occur to you in any way that not that you're not that you're in a position of, of being a superior kind of being, but... Do you feel a sense of responsibility for how you talk to people who all of us back here in helping us get a better sense of ourselves and our shared humanity? Does that make sense to you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's a privilege to be able to, to fly in space and serve your country like this and have this um, perspective on the planet and the atmosphere. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's important to share that perspective with uh, people that don't have the same privilege, absolutely.
1: Yeah, just so you also did a Christmas message. I frankly, let's listen to that. I don't know if it's any more uh, flowery in terms of the language. (laughs) Let's listen.
2: Welcome aboard the International Space Station. I'm Scott Kelly, along with my Expedition 46 crew members, Tim Kopra and Tim Peake. And we have a message for all of you for the holidays Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year from the International Space Station. Yeah, I think I was probably doing that um, at a time when maybe I would have rather been doing something yeah, else. No. is kind of how I sounded. I,
1: I'm, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I just, <laughs> But uh, I just thought it would be fun to play those. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't remember that, actually. <laughs> but I've been in space for Christmas three times. So. Yeah.
1: And, and that... Your kids aren't with you, you have two children, uh, grown, grown, uh, one of them's grown now, right?
2: Yeah, The, uh,
1: the other. Okay, how old are they now? Um, <laughs> 23 and 14. Okay, okay. But you're away from them on Christmas, three years in a row. You had gone through a difficult divorce and uh, had to deal with the fallout from that.
2: Yeah, that's the hardest thing about being in the space for a long period of time. It's not your personal safety, but you always worry about the you know, the safety of your family and your your loved ones on earth because if something happens to them, uh you're not coming home. Uh so and I experienced that firsthand on my the flight before that when my sister-in-law, Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords was shot in Tucson, Arizona.
1: You um you were watching CNN, which you did frequently and suddenly the feed was cut off, right?
2: Well, I didn't notice it was cut off. I was actually fixing the toilet at the time, but the the Ground uh, Control Center in Houston, yeah, they did cut it off because they didn't want me to to learn that news uh, from the television.
1: And you were told there was a private message that, of course, would not be part of the the publicly monitored communications Mm -hmm. between Ground Control and the shuttle um, and the space station. what, what happened in, in what you're experiencing of that moment?
2: Um, yes. Yeah, so I was working on the uh, toilet. It was a Saturday, January 8th, 2011. Um, and I got a call from the control center and they, you know, called me to the radio basically and said they were going to privatize the space to ground channel. The chief of the astronaut office needed to talk to me. She came on about five minutes later and said, uh, you know, I don't know how to tell you this. So I'm just going to tell you your sister-in-law Gabby was shot, Uh, a bunch of other people also reported that some people had been killed. And uh, and that was kind of it with the phone call, you know, hey, we'll do whatever we can to support you. Uh, I said, you know, let me know whatever news you get, even if it's uh, not confirmed. So whatever the news was reporting. I quickly got on the phone with my brother and my family, Amico, and um, later the Houston said, as I asked them to, I mean, I asked them to tell me everything. They said, you know, the, I think the Associated Press was uh, reporting that Gabby had died, and she had not. Got on the phone with a good friend of mine, Tillman Fortita, uh, in Houston, Texas, because I couldn't get my brother on the phone then because he was already in the air on the way to, uh, Tucson. He was in Houston and Tillman, my good friend, he, he explained that, uh, or he said to me, he says, you know, I don't know how I know this, but I just know, you know, Gabby's not dead. doesn't make sense. You know, she would still be in the operating room. You know, she wouldn't, she's still in the operating room. So she's not, she hasn't died. And he was right. Your, your brother, Mark, uh,
1: and, and your sister-in-law, we all know have gone on to be really fearless, advocates for better gun safety uh, laws. I, I, I may be missing something, but have you joined in that effort, or do you leave that to them? Uh, do you participate in, in any of those activities um, yourself? Not
2: in any kind of formal way. I mean, that's their that's their issue. That's, um, you know, their cause. Uh, you know, I have my own opinions, um, you know, one of which is clearly, we need to do something right because what we're doing doesn't really work so something should be done otherwise people are going to still be killed in this country with guns on a regular basis so you know i I, i'm just shocked that we basically our government basically has chosen to just absolutely ignore this issue and do nothing about it yeah she's made a
1: remarkable comeback but uh clearly your family still has to deal with the aftermath of that. She is still uh, has issues that are probably going to be with her for the rest of her life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's that like for you? You talk about the fact that you immediately liked her when Mark yeah. introduced so, you to her.
2: Yeah, so she's got some, you know, significant uh, disabilities as a as a result of uh, the shooting, and it's something that you know she and her family is going to have to live with for the rest of her life. Um, You know, in some ways, uh, you know, because she was a public person, she has uh, meaningful work to do to help in this area. So that that that's a positive thing uh, that she has that to occupy her time and to do something very important. But, yeah, like you said, it's something that, you know, her especially has to live with for the rest of her life.
0: Let's take another break right now. Bill's guest is retired astronaut Scott Kelly. He joined us last November to talk about his record-breaking 340 days in space. Welcome back to Two-Way Street. I'm Olivia Rheingold in for Bill Nigget. Let's get back to more of Bill's November 2017 conversation with astronaut Scott Kelly.
1: You do, in the book, uh, give us some sense of your political, uh, of the fact that you are a political being in many ways. You write that you follow the news from space, especially political news. And you're watching the presidential election unfold in 2015, and you basically say, like the hurricanes I watch from above, a storm seems to be gathering on the horizon that will shape our political landscape for years to come.
2: Yeah, and I, I you know, it's funny when, uh, you know, during the primary, we had conversations on board about, uh, you know, how that was uh, shaping up, and... uh It was, uh, you know, I think I think the uh, the suspicion I had about, um, you know, the discourse in this country that was going to result of, uh, you know, from that election was was right because it's, uh, you know, pretty tough out there in the political world right now. You say what the hell is going on down there?
1: I hope that uh, up there you didn't divide into the sort of partisan factions that some of our families have got right here on Earth. No. (laughs) That would be very difficult, I would think.
2: uh, You know, your your partners, um, crewmates, teammates, even um, issues between nations, the United States and Russia in particular, um, don't really affect our – our ability to get along and to be friends because what is most important in space is that we take care of one another. Uh, we work towards our, you know, common goals. Yeah. We do it in a, um, very, uh, you know, peaceful and friendly way. And, uh, you know, cause we all, you know, we, we share this planet. We share, um, Issues that are important to all of us—it's uh, kind of—I'm um, just shocked sometimes about how uh, how things are have un- unfolded. Yeah. Uh, you dealt with a another really difficult
1: uh, t- tragedy on February first, two thousand three, um, when the uh, space shuttle Columbia. You were this was, I think, a Saturday, as I recall, and you were on earth you were basically home and you were listening into the communications of um... what was going on right am i right if i got this you were I was watching
2: on tv Okay, yeah.
1: watching on yeah. tv uh... and of course we all know let's listen to what happened a considerable emergency going on right now throughout the space community throughout nasa admission control one can only imagine
2: nasa says none of the seat restraints helmets and spacesuits used by the doom crew of the space shuttle columbia worked well as the ship disintegrated the, the, the during re suffered a uh, a huge loss uh, seven uh, shuttle astronauts on board including the first ever
1: Israel. you um, had several friends who were flying the columbia that day uh, but one in particular i think laurel clark
2: yeah so yeah so three of my classmates were on uh, columbia 4 other of my colleagues at you know, I wasn't as close with with them as I was the the three uh, other people from my astronaut class, and you know, like you said, it was a it was a national uh, tragedy, and uh, you know, really unfortunate. Um, her son and your daughter Samantha, were, they played together. Yeah, they were they were uh, close at the time, um, and uh, yeah, Laurel used to pick Samantha up and take her and Ian to the zoo and on the weekends and we would spend, you know, my family and her family would spend time together. So when that happens, when Samantha learns of
1: uh, the death of a mom who used to take her to play with uh, her son, um, how do you talk to your children about that?
2: You know, you explain to them as best you can what happened, and you tell them, you know, Laurel, Laurel was and the rest of the crew members were doing something they felt was very important. Uh, they knew it was risky, although, you know, no one goes into this thinking, that they're gonna get killed they think they might and they hope they don't but um you know and that you know she would laurel and and i think the other crew members would want us to you know press ahead and and probably to best honor their memory and their sacrifice would be for us to continue to fly in space and do this uh, you know these incredible risky things because of the you know the benefits of doing that what probably made it harder was that you ended up being part of the
1: crew. That went out to look for uh, pieces of the Columbia wreckage and, unfortunately, look for uh, remains of some of the crew members. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, and you you go back to the right stuff. You say it reminds you of some of the pages you read of yeah. of uh, test pilots crashing in the desert and
2: uh, dealing with the aftermath of what mm-hmm. happened to them. Yeah, it was quite uh, quite an odd thing that that. Space shuttle broke apart over Texas, and you know the people that worked closest with um, the crew members, fellow astronauts, engineers, uh, instructors were only a two-hour drive from the crash site. Yeah. On a lighter note,
1: what the heck were you doing putting on a gorilla suit uh, on the International Space Station?
2: why not a gorilla suit? <laughs> Your brother Mark loved this idea, right? Well, it was his idea. He says, I'm sending you a gorilla suit. I'm, I said, what? Why Why? Why a gorilla suit? And uh, actually, it got a lot of attention, some negative uh, from a lot of the, you know, some folks that, you know, like to criticize NASA. You know, why would NASA spend all this money to fly a gorilla suit? Well, You know, NASA spends money to fly foam and packing material and sometimes lead ballast. So it really doesn't cost anything to fly a gorilla suit. And when I thought about it, I, uh, you know, thought about how sometimes I'll go to a a school and try to talk to kids. And there's always this kid like me that was in the back of the room not paying attention. Well, a gorilla in space, you cannot (laughs) not pay attention to that.
1: All right, you. Uh, f- f- the final day came, and uh, you uh, departed the space station uh, d- to come back. Um, you talk about the reentry coming back. In uh, you came back on this on, on the in a Russian capsule, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you you describe at one point in the book trying to prepare other uh, colleagues of yours. For what it was like to fly that Russian capsule, or not fly it, to sit in it as it dropped like a, a, a stone traveling at extraordinary speeds. What is that like?
2: It's, um, it's, uh, it's crazy, actually, <laughs> thinking about it. Um, you know, you undock from the space station, you fire some engines to slow down by just a few hundred miles an hour, and then right after that, the three sections are exploded apart some of the pieces are actually hitting the window right by the side of your head you can see stuffed debris flying outside as you hit the atmosphere you're pretty soon you're in this 3,000 degree fireball it gets hot inside um, the window you have pieces of the heat shield flying by it looks like you know just white hot um, burning material eventually the window just burns to a crisp and you can't see outside anymore it's kind of like going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, but while you're on fire. <laughs> but as soon as you realize you're not going to die, the most fun you've ever had in your life.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, if I hated being in space for a year, I'd do it all over again just for that last 20 minutes. Well, you know, you say the same thing about your spacewalks, that um, it, it, it's you, when you think about them, uh, it's after they're over that they're really fun. Yeah, it's type two kind of fun. <laughs> type one fun is the roller coaster. You know, it's fun while you're doing it. Type 2 fun is the things that, that are fun when you're done. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely that. Scott Kelly, you
1: close your book with um, some wonderful observations about what you learned. Do you mind if I read a couple of them to you? You can read all of them. <laughs> we'll let people buy the book and read all of them. But I'll tell, a, tell you a few that I picked out that I thought were wonderful. I've learned that nothing feels as amazing as water. The night my plane landed in Houston and I finally got to go home, I did exactly what I'd been saying all along I would do. Walked in the front door, walked out the back door, and jumped into my swimming pool, still in my flight suit. You've said, I've learned how important it is to sit and eat with other people. While I was in space, I saw on TV one day a scene of people sitting down to eat a meal together. The sight moved me with an unexpected yearning. And then you say something we talked about at the very beginning of this conversation. I've learned that grass smells great, and wind feels amazing, and rain is a miracle. I will try to remember how magical these things are for the rest of my life. It sounds very romantic. I'm a poet, (laughs) and I didn't know it. Scott Kelly, as we uh, uh, end our conversation, You've been retired from the program now for a while. Do you want to go back? Do you miss going into space? Every day. Scott Kelly, your book is Endurance. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. And uh, I really appreciate your spending so much time with us on Two Way Street. Thanks a lot for being here. No, oh,
2: my pleasure.
0: You can learn more about Scott Kelly's 2017 memoir, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery on the Two-Way Street Facebook page and on our website at gpb.org tws. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Thanks for revisiting one of our favorite conversations with us. I'm Olivia Reingold, Two-Way Street's producer. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. Our host is Bill Nygut. We hope to see you again next week for another two-way street.